Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Welcome back to Girl and the Gov, the podcast. It's a new week and it's a new iconic guest. I mean, I don't know how many times we have to say it, but like 2022, <laughs> we're coming for you. We have been coming at you with some pretty amazing guests, and we have another one for you today because we are talking to our first Congress member. Woo! <laughs> so super excited about that, and we'll get into it in a little bit and introduce who our guest is. But to start us off, I think we just need to talk about something that happened the other day. Was it yesterday? I don't even know. <sighs> I never know. I can't speak today. I can't speak today. I'm lost. Well, Joe Biden did some speaking for you because he he had a little moment. I would call it a pretty iconic, hilarious moment, but I'm sure, you know, some people are trying to tear him apart for it. But to give everyone some context, our president, Joe Biden, 
responded to a question about inflation at a press conference. I like how this article says, by calling a Fox News reporter a vulgarity. <laughs> like, come on, just say it. But basically, he was at this like press conference and this Fox News reporter like shouted out kind of near the end and said, do you think inflation is a political liability ahead of the midterms? And Biden responded with some sarcasm and said, it's a great asset, more inflation. Um, joking, obviously. Like, come on, dude. Obviously, it's not a great setup for the midterms, which I kind of like love that, like, he's just he acknowledging knows, yeah. that. And he's like, I know, like, fuck <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> and then he proceeded to shake his head and add, what a stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> Samantha, thoughts? Okay, so one. You know how there is, like, that thing where, like, it's honestly more of, like, a grandma trait, I feel like, where they're, like, you get to a certain age, and then grandma is just unfiltered. Like, you're mm, yeah. a certain age, and you just can kind of say whatever you want. Yeah. Some of that connotation is a little bad, but, like, regardless, like, this kind of reminds me of that. No. Like, Grandpa Biden's just, like, straight up, like, yeah, I don't give two fucks. Like, My grandma one time, we were playing Bananagrams, which is basically Scrabble. And every word she wrote out was like whore, slut, all these vulgarities, as this article would say. And it, yeah, it's definitely giving that energy. You're right. Wait, that's actually hilarious. And I'm obsessed with your grandma. And I was so... like, um, grandma? It's <laughs> happening. It's happening. I literally, um, I can't. But I think A, there's that vibe to it. And B, honestly, like, this just goes to our constant argument that like politics is kind of hilarious and there's so much drama like this is great this is a great moment this reminds me of like the nancy Pelosi, you know speed trip like we have a question we literally have a question guys if you haven't seen some of the clips and we'll obviously be putting more up on tiktok but of our fast five segment where we ask our guests you know like some of these like fun and like silly questions and one of them is like what is your favorite political blooper and or scandal and like this is this is a great blooper and i'm really hoping that we have a guest come on and name this as theirs because it might be it's my favorite of 2022 so far no i know and it's like this article is interesting too like some of the this this specific journalist from fox news like they've had a few back and forth before like so the, the, the comments were captured on video by the microphone in front of him and do see that's the journalist's name which is hilarious first of all <laughs> Ducey um, is his name and from Fox News Ducey from Fox and he basically laughed it off in a subsequent appearance on Fox Fox News like on the network he came on and Sean Hannity had to ask him about it and Ducey <laughs> said nobody has fact-checked him yet and said it's not true like laughing and then he also told Sean Hannity that Biden called him later to clear the air and said, it's nothing personal, pal, which is also just like classic. Like I see this playing out. Mm -hmm. I can visualize it. And then actually at a co news conference last week, Biden said to Ducey with sarcasm, you always ask me the nicest questions. And then he responded. He said, I have a whole binder full. And Biden said, I know you do. None of them make a lot of sense to me. Fire away. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just kind of like, love the story. Love it. I the love, video's like, the great. Banter. We'll definitely, yeah, I love the banter. We'll definitely put it on TikTok for everyone to see. And just like a funny little moment by Joe. Honestly, if this this should make his approval ratings just jump a little bit. I just want maybe half a point, maybe one point. Just I think it deserves a jump. 
I do too. And you know what I think is so, so key to this. And we've touched on it a little bit before. And I, I think sometimes opinions waver on it. But like people want politicians that are relatable. Like our friend Sky has like actually just shifted her whole thing from national Democrat to political personalities. And like the persona, the personality behind like who, you know, the elected is like does count for something sometimes, you know, it does show like how they actually handle situations when they're like authentic and they like give a real response and they, you know, have like, you can almost see their legitimate like relationships come to light. But I think like this does, well, maybe it doesn't solve all of his problems by any means. Mm -hmm. I do think this relatability, (laughs) this ability to be like, oh my, no, this to be like, you know, like, oh my God, Joe, Joe. He does have a lot of like just funny, funny moments. I will give him that. And this was definitely up there. Oh my god! Like he bullshits like my dad. You know, it's like it's kind of yeah. that type of like. Oh no, he the does relatability is huge. It. Check TikTok soon or whenever we get it up, we'll get it up. Hopefully by the time this is um, posted, this episode is out. I don't even know what I'm saying, but let's get into this interview because it's a it's kind of a long one. We this Congress member is in fact a tangent king, and we call ourselves tangent queens. So it just was a lot. It was a lot, and it was amazing, and I hope you guys all love it. But guess like, what? There's just a few housekeeping items. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to get the broom is out. I just have to sweep sweep really fast. There's it's just a little dirty in here. We need some housekeeping because I just want to remind everybody sign up for the brand ambassador program if you're interested. Again, there's networking opportunities, resume boosters, community building, like-minded political individuals, or if you you know maybe haven't stepped into a political space or community before, this is a great place to go. It's super friendly, relatable, all the things. So sign up at girlinthegov.com. Um, you can also learn more about the Brand Ambassador program there. We also have an internship for the spring. I know it's kind of like spring internships are kind of dwindling at this point, late late January. But if it's still an option for you and you can get college credit, then go check it out at girlinthegov.com slash careers. We also are accepting summer internships. So Go check it out. Also, donation link is in an episode description. If you are loving this show and want to help us keep the lights on and support us, send us a few quarters. It is, again, linked in this episode description. I feel like that's it, right? I have an asterisk to point one on the sweep list, and that is that we have a networking event for our brand ambassadors coming up in less than two weeks. Mm -hmm. So... This is a really, really good time to apply and get involved because it will be hosted by one of our really awesome guests that we've had on the show. And I will leave it at that. So you don't want to miss this opportunity. You don't want to miss the ones after that as well. So definitely move the fingers, type into the computer, type on the phone, whatever it is. Do the little typey thing. If you use Siri too, look, I don't, but you might. Siri can get you there. Siri could absolutely get you there. Yeah. So I'm just saying. There it is. Uh, broom is put away. Dustpan did its job, and it's looking it's looking clean in here. And I think we're ready to get into our interview because, again, you guys, first Congress member, first federal elected official. Oh yeah, this episode is definitely the meeting of a tangent king and tangent queens. Let us tell you, we are a bunch of chatty hathies on this episode, <laughs> and we had so much fun. We cannot wait for you guys to like get into it. And this guest. This Tangent King, which we have to let him know his new name. It's going to be yeah. the first thing we email over, is Congressman Swazi. He is the congressman for District 3 in New York State, and he is currently running for the governor's seat in New York. So if you live in New York, just FYI, 
Two deadlines I want to flip on here. Party affiliation deadline is February 14th and the New York primary is June 28th. So just keep that in mind in this conversation. But our conversation really touches on his time in Congress currently, what he does, i.e., you know, on the Ways and Means Committee. And naturally, sort of to that segment, is what taxation looks like in the United States, how it works at the state and federal level, lots of things along those lines, which is super timely because it is tax season. I know. I know no one wants to hear it, but it is. So it is upon us. So... Without further ado, let's get into it. Here is Congressman Swazi. We're excited to have you on the show, of course. And what we always love to do is, of course, provide our listeners with a little bit of context. So if you wouldn't mind giving us the background on what district you represent in New York, what the people sort of of that district typically, you know, look for in terms of issues and vote on, give us sort of the lay of the land. All right, Maddie and Sammy, I'm so excited to be on your show. Thanks for having me on. Yes. And I'm Tom Swazi. I'm a congressman, a member of Congress. I represent the third congressional district in New York, which means I represent the North Shore of Long Island and the Northeast portion of Queens, all along the Long Island Sound. And I grew up in Glen Cove, Long Island. That's my hometown. It's kind of right in the middle of my district. And it goes out to Suffolk County, Nassau County, and into Queens, like I said. And every congressional district in the United States of America has about 750,000 people. And that's how many people I have. And most districts are going to, they're all going to be bigger with the new census. So there'll be more people have live in the United States now in 2020, you know, it's 2022 now, but 2020 census than they did in 2010. And so they, it's still the same number of members of Congress, 435. So the population of each district is now gonna be bigger. It's gonna go up to like 790,000. So you'll hear a lot of stuff going on in the country about redistricting and gerrymandering, which is a big problem in our country, quite frankly, I can talk about that if you want. And so I'm not sure where my district is gonna go to because it's decided by the state legislature, but it doesn't matter because I'm not gonna be running for reelection for Congress because I have to choose between this or what I am, I've chosen to do instead is I'm running for governor of New York state. So let me just tell you one thing about redistricting. Can I tell you about that or not? Please, please. We love talking about redistricting. So with the new census, they have to draw new lines. And what happens, a big problem in politics today is that the, the state legislatures or the people that choose how the districts are drawn are often trying to protect the incumbents. Mm-hmm. And the big problem in our country is that they throw all the Republicans in Republican districts and they put all Democrats in Democratic districts, you know, registered voters. So yeah. that it, you guarantee if you're the Democrat in the Democratic district, you're going to win. You're the Republican in the Republican district, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. That's why, how could it be that Congress has like a 15% approval rating, but 90% get reelected? It's because yeah. of this redistricting, this, this gerrymandering, that you're going to win your seat as long as you're in the right party. The yeah, only way that approval lose, rating is such an interesting point. The only way you can lose by losing it, like you have like a major scandal or you lose a primary and nobody yeah. votes in the primaries. The people that vote in the primaries are often the most extreme viewed, most radical view people. So the far right for the Republicans, the far left for the Democrats. And so all these politicians, like Congress, for example, are in safe seats, worried about their primary 
So they pander to the base, the people that vote in the primaries. The Republicans pander to the far right. The Democrats pander to the far left. And most of the normal people in the middle say, hey, kids, you work together, get left out. Yeah, That's why totally. everything's so screwed up because yeah. politicians are pandering to the base. Then you have social mm -hmm. media, the most popular people on social media are the extremists. Then cable news, you got, they're not like doing journalism. They're trying to sell advertising on Fox News or on MSNBC. So they just yeah. talk to their people. You know, the highest rated cable show is only 4 million people. Tucker Carlson on Fox News. So, you know, that's there's 330 million people in America, but they control the conversation. And then the yeah. last thing, I know I'm talking way too long. No, you're the not, last please. thing we have to really worry about is that the Russians and the Chinese and our other foreign strategic adversaries are using social media to try and sow extreme messages and civil unrest in our country. They're trying to get us to say, oh my gosh, what happened to my country? It's falling apart because they want to destroy our democracy. So all these factors, politicians pandering, social media, cable news, foreign adversaries are all trying to pull us apart. And that's what we have to fight against. Anyway, that was a way too long an answer. No, I was like, oh, but it, how do we fight against it? Yeah, that was going to be my question too, is like yeah. in looking at all of these issues that are coming at us and some of them being foreign as well, it, are there any <clears throat> solutions that we can, even you know individually that we can do to sort of reduce that? Or maybe the, on a government level too, what can we do to sort of change that from happening more? The real solution <clears throat> is people have to get involved. Democracy is not, when democracy was set up, you know, America is like the, you know, the oldest democracy. When the founders talked about America, their big concern was that the people would not be involved and that they wouldn't be educated about the issues. And as a result, the political parties and the power brokers would control everything. And that's what you have to worry about. If the people voted in the primaries, they would never vote for some of the nutty stuff you hear about. I mean, 90% of Americans are in favor of background checks uh, on guns, okay? 90%. Yeah. Now, how can we, we can't pass background checks? Why? Because a lot of people are afraid that if they do vote for background checks, then the, the NRA or other gun rights groups will go after them and they'll yeah. lose the primary. And so it's, you know, yeah. same thing on Democratic side, you know, everybody's worried about losing the primary. So they pander. If the if the people were involved and they mm -hmm. said, oh, I'm going to vote for the person that I think makes the most common sense. And they 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 actually showed up. Then the politicians couldn't pander because they'd have to listen to the people. Yeah. And yeah. The problem primaries is the primaries, you know, it's like, well, the presidential elections, you know, the, the people pay attention to that. But then there's all these other, you know, city council and state legislature and Congress and assembly yeah. and set, I mean, set, I mean, it's all these different races and a primary, the primary in New York is June 28th. You know, it's like, wow, you know, what, what are you thinking about on June 28th? You know, it's a vacation. It's right. So young people, quite frankly, young people do not vote at a high number. They're voting more than they used to. They really yeah. voted a lot in 2020 because of Trump, quite frankly, because I was scared of Trump. Uh, a lot of people were scared of Trump, I should say. But young people, you know, they don't they don't participate that much. 
Yeah. I mean, the no, only reason I'm doing your pod show is because my daughter said I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> she gives great advice. I know. So, you know, I'm very happy she... You need more people like you coming on to these platforms as well and reaching young people because I think that's also missing. It's like young people aren't watching CNN, so how do you reach them? You need to branch into these newer platforms where they are. So, so thank you for being here. <laughs> when I was growing up versus when you were growing up because... Yeah. You know, we had three news channels and, you know, I didn't really watch the news that much when I was a kid, but there were three news channels. They all kind of talked about the same thing. Now, number one, there's like a million different sources for news now on television. You know, a lot of people don't even watch TV. They just watch, you know, streaming, yeah. you know, Me. Netflix or Hulu <laughs> or, or Amazon Prime or whatever, Showtime, anytime I've been watching a lot lately. And so, <clears throat> or they get it from their, you know, some sort of social media feed or some sort of summer. So we just... We all have a different source of information now. And a lot of times the source is biased. So we have to yeah. be cognizant of that. Totally. Well, let's like, let's run it back to, I want to talk about you are currently a Congress member, but you are also running for New York governor. So I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your governor's race. I also want to hear about honestly the balance of like, how do you really do that? Are you guys in session? How do you balance running a campaign for governor and still your kind of legislative duties in Congress as well? So in Congress before COVID, I would spend, I would say like 80% of the weeks I would go to Washington DC. And during the week, I would come home every weekend for the most part, unless I like went on a Codell to like Afghanistan or or um, South Korea or you know Israel or some, some other place in the world. So 80% of the weeks I'd be in Washington. And then during those weeks, I would be there from like either Monday to Thursday, Monday to Friday, Tuesday to Friday. So you'd be there three or four or five nights a week. And so, but I'd come home every weekend. Now, since COVID, I would say it's more like 50% of the weeks I'm in Washington, D.C. And you're allowed to vote by proxy if you're concerned about what's going on with COVID or if there's something okay. related to, to COVID. So I'm not, so I have less time that I have to be in Washington, D.C. And there's so much okay. stuff that you can do remotely now yeah. that you couldn't do before. So it's actually helping me. Even, even for the governor's race, I'm doing a lot of press conferences and things remotely, you know, on Zoom, even though I did one in New York City today about crime, a big crime problem in New York City. And I, I'm doing telephone town halls where it's like a new technology. It's not a new technology, but it's, I've been using it. We used it in Congress, but now I'm using it to campaign. I've had five telephone town halls. I'll cover the whole state when I get to my seventh telephone town hall. And I may talk to my staff about doing it again. I had 5,500 people on the first one. And the one I had last night, I had 8,000 people on the telephone town hall. So wow. it's been a great way to actually talk directly to voters and they're very totally. engaged. And so this remote stuff and is, is made it actually easier in some way, but it's yeah. less, you know, touchy feely, you know, personal one-on-one <laughs> -on -one type thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe true. it's a good thing. Cause I don't know if I've like ever voted for someone for someone like kissing a baby or whatever that sort of like imagery <laughs> is. So honestly, like, I feel like I would be more engaged or listening to a campaign if I had sort of that direct line, like via a town hall and I don't have to take the time to go there or, you know, like commute oh, somewhere or whatever. I'll tell you, so I've great. done town halls. 
I've done town halls all all of my career. It's even since I've been in con- when I ran for Congress, I did like I forget what it was like twenty five or forty town halls. But you never have more than a hundred or two hundred people there. I had eight thousand people, five thousand people. So it's really been great. That is crazy. So well, speaking uh, of those yeah. town halls, though, what what is everyone asking about? I know obviously New York City, lots of questions about rising crime and things of that nature. But are there any themes you're seeing? Anything that you're like, okay, this really needs to be central to my campaign. So my campaign, you know, I'm trying to talk about things that people care about and things that I actually care about myself. So it's it's kind of like the person meets the moment for me because totally. the things I care about are things that I'm finding that people care about. Mm-hmm. So I talk about my experience, you know, people like, oh, you know, he's a, what's the expression that everybody uses? He's a um, career politician. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trained as a CPA and an attorney and I worked in the private sector, but I was mayor of my hometown for eight years. I was county executive of one of the largest counties in the country for eight years, and I've been in Congress for five years, and I've had a lot of ups and downs along the way. I can tell you about those ups and downs if you want to hear it. But <laughs> I have the experience. I'm a proven executive to run a very big, large government. New York State is a $200 billion government. It's actually bigger than that. It's bigger than any Fortune 500 company. Wow. And a lot of time, politicians you know, are lawyers who can make a good speech, but they never ran anything. I've run big governments. I know how to make it work. My, and my experience as a CPA actually helps me tremendously. So I know how to run big governments. So I'm a, number one, I'm a proven executive. Number two, I'm a common sense Democrat. I'm, a, you know, I, I'm concerned about too many people in politics these days, like I said before, pandering to the edges. Yeah. And I'll work with anybody. I work with Democrats. I'll work with Republicans. I'll work with progressives. I'll work with moderates. I'll work with anybody to get the job done and actually help people. That's what I've done my entire career. In Congress, I'm the vice chairman of a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans, we meet every week to try and find common ground. Now, we don't agree with each other. I don't agree with a lot of people on a lot of different things. But my job, I believe, is to try and see where can I find agreement so I can actually get something done. That's, you know, we passed this big $1.2 trillion infrastructure deal. It was bipartisan. Even Mitch McConnell over. He doesn't vote for anything. So it was like, (laughs) You know, that was a major accomplishment. That's a generational change that'll help a lot of people. So number one, proven executive. Number two, common sense Democrat. And number three, my vision. What are the issues I'm focused on? New York State has some of the highest taxes in America. I'm a Democrat, but I still think our taxes are too high in New York State. People are leaving New York State. Maddie, you're from California. They're leaving California. We had 300,000 people leave New York State in the past year alone. And a lot of it has to do with high, high taxes, uh, high property taxes, high income tax. Young people. What is the solution for that, by the way? So we need to increase the state aid to actually reduce the local property taxes. We need to change from mandates like you have to run things this way. You have to do it that way to guidelines, especially for schools. And then if schools do well, leave them alone. If you have high graduation rates, you have high test scores, leave them alone. If you're a troubled school, you're not doing well, then that's where you flood the resources into those places. But we have so many mandates, so many rules in New York State that cost more money and our results are not any better, are below average actually. So I believe that we should let schools do, and teachers and administrators do what they wanna do following guidelines. And if they do well, leave them alone. If they do poorly, then you go flood them with help. And also there's a thing called a circuit breaker. You shouldn't have to pay above a certain percentage of your income in property taxes. This is really important for senior citizens 
who they bought their house 40, 50 years ago. The house was worth nothing. Now the house is worth an enormous amount of money, but they're on social security. So they can't pay the property taxes. So they're getting mm -hmm. chased out of their houses. So you shouldn't have to pay above a certain percentage of your income for property taxes. So there's all different types of taxes people pay. I should say that to young people here on the call. There's income taxes, okay, based upon your income that you pay to the federal government, you pay to your state government, sometimes you pay to the city, like the city of New York, income taxes. Okay. There's sales taxes that you pay when you buy something. Sales taxes is a percentage of the goods you buy, not for food, but for other stuff that are not non-necessities, <clears throat> that you have to pay sales tax. That money usually goes to the state governments and to some local governments. Then there's property taxes. Property taxes are things everybody's so upset about the most. We have some of the highest property taxes in the country in New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, Massachusetts. These are, these are democratic states. Why do we have higher taxes in these democratic states? Because we insure our children, because we insure adults. We have the lowest rates of uninsured children and adults. Some of the lowest taxes in America are Texas and Florida. They have the highest rates of uninsured children, the highest rates of uninsured adults. We believe in climate change, so we're doing stuff about climate change. That costs more money. They don't believe in climate change. They say it's a hoax down in Florida and Texas, so they don't spend the money, so it's cheaper. They're, the government's cheaper. We have unions in New York and California or in other democratic states. They don't have unions as much in Texas and Florida. So, but when you have a union, you pay your teachers more, you pay your police officers more, you pay your civil servants more. So it costs more. That causes you to have higher state and local taxes. Yeah. So can, we have mass transit, that costs more. They don't have yeah. that. For tax alternatives though, what are some alternatives if you were to lower people's taxes? Mm -hmm. in I wanna see, I don't have any problem with increasing taxes at the federal level. That means wherever you live in America, you gotta pay your taxes. At the state level, though, because our taxes are so high at the state level in New York and California, for example, because you guys are from New York and California. Yeah. People are leaving us because they want to move to lower tax places. So when we raise our taxes at the state level, people say, especially uh, wealthy people or people who have just retired from work and they're getting a pension or something like that, they say, oh, my money will go so much further if I move away. So not everybody's going to do that because most people want to stay where their families are and their friends are and they love where they live. But a lot of people are leaving our states and going to these other low tax states. We have a lot of people leaving New York and going to Florida, for example. So this is a big problem for our long term history. So when I was born, I'm 59, I was born in 1962. We had 45 members of Congress from New York State. Today we have 27 members of Congress and it's going down to 26 because we're losing relative population where places like Texas and Florida Texas. are growing in relative population. So listen, we, just, yeah. we got off track with taxes. So taxes is <laughs> number one issue. Two is crime, very big problem that we're having. Three is the environment. I was the environmentalist of the year for all of New York State. I got awards from Al Gore and stuff like that. I'm a big environmentalist. <clears throat> and four is we have to help our troubled schools. This is something I'm very passionate about. If you look at the problems of society is, you know, 75% of the people in jail have a drug, alcohol, or mental health problem. 50% of the people at Rikers Island, which is like the big jail in New York City, have a learning disability. 
the problems of life related to crime, homelessness, poverty, uh, domestic violence, the, the, the social dysfunction of life are related often to drugs, alcohol, and mental health. And these problems emerge at young ages. Yeah. So if you look at third grade test scores in the best school district and the most at-risk school district, they're very similar. But if you go to the same school in eighth grade, the good school district, the kids are soaring and the kids in the at-risk school district have fallen off the face of the earth. The problems yeah. of life that ultimately become drugs, alcohol, yeah. and mental health start emerging at those young ages. And we have to change our whole mentality, I believe, in our society. We need to mm -hmm. work on prevention instead of just you know, dealing with the problems when they get, most of our societies designed, like when somebody shows up at the window and says, I need a, a welfare payment or a food stamps or housing assistance or some emergency help. We need mm -hmm. to work on prevention. You ever hear Desmond Tutu? He was the South African Bishop who worked on apartheid. Yeah. He used to say, we spent a lifetime pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and stop them from falling in the river in the first place. Mm -hmm. totally. So my big idea that I'm so passionate about is we have to take all of our social services, all of our government programs at the federal, state, and local level, all of our not-for-profits, not and push them into our schools. So that when a teacher or an administrator says, this kid's having a problem, because they can't resolve it all themselves. The teachers are overwhelmed in, in, in that-risk school districts. It's too much for them. Yeah. You know, you have one guidance counselor, one social worker, one school psychologist, you know, in the good school district and the, and the at-risk school district, they got one of each. But in the good school district, they got private health insurance, they got families are more stable, they've got enough, they have a low volume of problems. In the at-risk school district, the volume of problems is so high that you need these outside agencies to come in and help. Mm -hmm. So uh, this, I'm very passionate about this, and this is where my experience in knowing how to run government and make things work and my philosophy of trying to help prevent these problems from growing could really make a big difference, I believe, in people's lives. I agree. I do want to, not to throw our phrase, run it back in here again, but I do want to run it back <laughs> to this tax conversation because it really segues into our I have a stupid question segment. And that is really related <laughs> to one of the committees that you're actually on, which I don't think a lot of people like know what it actually means. So the House Ways and Means Committee, we have an idea that has something to do with taxes, just an inkling, but a lot of people don't. So if you wouldn't mind giving people the spiel, what does it do? What's it all about? What is this committee tasked with? So the House Ways and Means Committee is the only committee in Congress that's actually in the US Constitution. And there's dozens of committees. Oh, wow. So it's the only one that was mentioned from the very beginning of the country. And it's the ways and means of funding all the stuff the government does. So uh -huh. what are the ways and means of funding government? Usually taxes, mm -hmm. you know, income taxes, corporate taxes, estate taxes. Where are we going to get the money to pay for all the different things we do? How are we going to pay for Social Security? How are we going to fund the infrastructure program? How are we going to mm -hmm. do, you know, the president wants to do the big Build Back Better program. And he said, listen, under the Trump administration, they reduced the taxes on the wealthiest Americans from 39.6 down to 37%. We're saying we should put it back up to 39.6. Mm -hmm. They reduced the corporate tax from 35 down to 21%. Big dramatic decrease. The corporations totally. weren't even asking for that. They were asking yeah. for like 28 or 25%. We're saying, you know what? 
it's, it helps the businesses be more competitive in America to, to have reduced it, but we reduced it way too low. Let's move yeah. it back up to like 25 or so. We won't put it back up to where it was, 35, but let's move it up to 25 or 26. So this is really a big debate in the country about taxes. And I think that we should increase the taxes on the wealthiest people in our country at the federal level. If we do it at the state level, which we have done in our states, our democratic states typically, people leave are leaving our states. And when they leave our states, they leave a big hole in the revenue uh, for the state. So where does that money come from? Either you raise the taxes on the people that are still living there, or you yeah. cut the services, which has really been the, the goal of the conservative movement in the country is to decimate the democratic states so they would lose their revenue, so they would, couldn't be quite so progressive. So this is a big issue. I, I hope this isn't too wonky for you. The first deduction in the federal tax code was set up like 100 years ago. The federal taxes only started like 100 years ago. Before that, you only had state and local taxes. Okay. And about 100 years ago, in like 1917 or so, they started taxing people at the federal level. And the governors and the mayors all said, no, 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 we don't want you taxing us at the federal level because then we won't be able to raise money from the local level. And we're the laboratories of democracy. We want to do our schools and we want to take care of our low-income people. And we want to you know our, at that time, the waterways and the trains, and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, we don't want you to tax us. They said, don't worry. We, you know, we, first of all, we need the money at the federal level because we have to have an army. This was a big issue during the Civil War, the 1800s. They tried to do it then and they, they, they declared it unconstitutional, but then they did it again in the early 1900s. So we need money for the army. We need money for the big stuff that the federal government does. We're going to give you a deduction from your income on state and local taxes. Any taxes you pay in the property taxes or the income taxes at the state or local level, you can deduct from your income so you don't get taxed on the taxes you've already paid. Are you following mm -hmm. me so far? Yeah. Okay, so Trump in 2017 with the Republicans running the, the Congress said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna get rid of that state and local tax deduction. We're gonna cap it at $10,000. Why? Because number one, it generated a lot of money for the federal government for them to pay for their tax cuts for the rich guys. And number two, it, it only hurt really the high tax states, which are often democratic states. So he said, they're not gonna vote for me anyway. I'm gonna, this is a body blow to New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and California and Illinois and Massachusetts and Maryland and the places that didn't vote for me anyway. So who cares? <laughs> so they yeah. capped the state and local tax deduction at $10,000. Well, where I live, property taxes are $15,000, $20,000, $30,000. Income taxes are another, depending on how much you make, 10%, 11%, 12% of your income, especially in New York City. So this has really been a body blow to New York and California and New Jersey and Connecticut and other places. So I've tried to get that, I'm the lead person in the Congress trying to get that state and local tax deduction back. And the Republicans are totally opposed to it. And some progressives are saying, why do you wanna do that? This is gonna benefit wealthy people in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. And I say, it doesn't just benefit, well, it benefits the state because we have our progressive programs in New York and New Jersey and California, et cetera, et cetera, because we have these people paying their taxes. That's the money we use to pay for all the progressive stuff we do to give us low rates of uninsured children, to give us mass transit, to help us fight for climate change, against climate change, to help us 
address the problems we have. So it's yeah, a real totally. battle, but that's politics. No, it is a battle and for sure. Those property taxes are ridiculous. My parents just moved to Massachusetts from New Jersey, and part of their argument was the property taxes are just like too damn high. And yep, New, York, they, New Jersey highest. In yeah, the they're like, well, at this point, like we don't have a kid in schools. Like we're not using the local services. So like, sorry, we're not paying like fifteen thousand dollars a year in property taxes in addition to everything else. So. They were like, I don't know if we want to leave New Jersey, but like, and obviously Massachusetts, great state too, different vibe, but like very much a part of the conversation. So I think, you know, this a is- A lot of people yeah. are like that. A lot of your listeners, their parents or the friends of their parents have are thinking about moving or have moved to places like lower tax states. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it is. It's a trend for sure right now. Well, we have another stupid question for you because we want to talk about- talk about your committee we want to talk about a subcommittee first of all kind of if you can explain really what a subcommittee is and how that functions but specifically to the oversight and tax policy subcommittee what what does that handle specifically and how does it kind of play into this conversation of like tax policy and, and the, all these things we've talked you about you guys are getting very wonky that's good <laughs> so the oversight committee is oversight of government agencies so like a great example is we oversee the IRS, the Internal Revenue okay. Service. So we monitor how they're running that executive branch. You know, so there's three branches of government. Executive, that's the president, and all the different agencies of the government. Then the legislative, which I'm in, and then you have judiciary. So in my legislative branch, one of the things we do is oversight the executive branch. So we monitor the IRS. The IRS is a complete mess. You, you well, listen, over the next couple of months, you're going to be hearing about how all the backlogs they have and they can't get anything done and it's taken too much time. Some, I heard a thing on the radio this morning. There were 238 million calls to the IRS last year. And of those 238 million calls to the IRS, they only answered, you ready? Oh, no. da, 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 like 30 million calls. And there was an average wait time of 25 minutes. Now, why? Because they've decimated the Republicans, quite frankly, decimated the IRS over the past 15 years or so. Yeah. They've cut all the employees. And and one of the big things that, that Biden wanted to do as part of the Build Back Better plan, where we talked about raising the taxes on the wealthiest people, et cetera, and doing getting the state and local tax deduction back and funding climate change and funding child tax credit and funding child care and funding all these different wonderful things to make the world a better place to live in America was we wanted to rebuild the IRS so we could actually collect money from people that owe money. Because a lot of people are not, nobody's getting audited anymore. Nobody's getting, we're not watching the very wealthy people, the, the big businesses to make sure that they're following the rules. So we just want to make sure people pay what they're obligated to pay. And so the Republicans helped defeat that. So it's a big challenge. So we do oversight. And then the other committee I'm on is to is the Select Revenue Committee, which means looking at you know what I talked about before, taxes and where there's the money going to come from to pay for things. I just feel very much um, at ease about taxes now because 
I have this ridiculous, irrational fear that I am going to go to jail for a white collar tax crime that I didn't know I was committing. But now that I know that there's no audits happening because of the Republicans, I feel I'm going to sleep well tonight. So if anything that has, you know, come from this conversation, that is it. But we do want to talk a little bit more about your campaign. You are, you know, primarying current governor. Can you give us lay of the land as to why, you know, why now, why this race? What has you saying this position feels like it's going to be the game changer for me at this moment? So I really feel like everything I've done in my career has prepared me for this particular job at this particular time. Interesting. And I really am worried about my country and I'm worried about my state. And I'm worried about the fact that there's too much pandering to the extremes and I feel like I, you know, I'm giving up Congress. I mean, Congress is a great honor and a great responsibility and I enjoy it and I'm good at it. I think I'm good at it, but I'm giving it up because I feel so strongly that my state's in a lot of trouble and our country's in a lot of trouble. And I want to have a voice as one of the governors of one of the most important states in the country to try and help our country because you know, I was there in the Capitol when they when the insurrection happened on January 6th. I was one of the last yeah. people to get out of the chamber. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there when we thought there were gunshots, but when they were breaking through the window where the, you know, the door where the president walks through and they say, ladies and gentlemen, the president yeah. of the United States of America. Well, that was yeah. the door. If you ever saw the thing with the guys looking through the window and the, yeah. guy, the Capitol police have the guns trained on them. That yeah. was right there. And I was yeah. I was up in the gallery right above that. And but when they were breaking through the glass, we thought that, that was gunfire, but it was really CO2 fired pistons breaking through the glass. Oh my gosh. And, and, and a guy said, Swaz, check the door, check the door, make sure the door is locked. And then and then we heard when the woman got shot in the back, you know, in the back of the chamber. Yeah. I was there when that happened. And all the cops started, the radio started peeling and everybody, everybody down, everybody down. And shots fired in the Capitol, shots fired in the Capitol. We're all carrying gas masks with us. I mean, it was a pretty like, I'm like, I can't believe this is happening to my country. Mm-hmm. And I see all this crazy talk from the extremists. And it's like, you know, government matters and leadership matters. Yeah. It's serious business. It affects real people. I just did a press conference today about crime. I was I went to the 32nd precinct in Harlem where the police officer was killed on Friday night. And I was looking at the wall of honor of the cops that have lost their jobs and they've lost their lives in the line of duty. Five police officers were killed in the 1970s from that precinct. No police officer had been killed since then. And this was the first one in a long time. It matters about what we're doing to address these very serious issues in real ways that on the one hand, you know, my long-term prevention stuff to address crime, drug and alcohol issues and try to help homeless people and get them off the streets into mental health facilities and to hospitals and to shelters. You know, when I was in law school, I used to sleep overnight to supervise a homeless shelter. I used to work at a soup kitchen. I, I've got, you know, I, I'll never forget the image of a guy I saw in the city a couple of years ago. He had like a big, huge sore on his leg. It was like pink and it was, it was like oozing and he was like muttering to him. And I couldn't do anything to help the guy. I mean, it was, yeah. I felt so helpless. Totally. And it's like we can do things to address these problems as far as prevention for the long term, 
But in the meanwhile, we have to do intervention. We have to stop the crime from happening. You know, a woman got pushed in front of the subway the other day by a, a, yeah. a mentally ill homeless guy. This cop was, was killed responding to a domestic violence issue in Harlem. And the guy who shot him was probably mentally ill too. But he had a, he had a, a very serious weapon called the Glock with a, like an attachment to it where you could shoot 40 rounds. So we just have to, I feel just so strongly that we have to address the crime, the taxes, we have to protect the environment. Climate change is real. It's not a phony baloney thing. It's a real thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to be in trouble on our planet yeah. for real. I, I mean, I've seen it over the years get worse and we can fix it, but you need leadership. We need to, mm -hmm. so many people these days say, oh, it all stinks. It doesn't work. It's no good. The largest group of people in the country, 52% are the politically disengaged and the politically disenchanted. The far crazy left, the far crazy right, like six, seven, eight percent on each side. And yeah. you have like the traditional pro progressives, liberals, and the traditional conservatives. But the biggest group are the politically disengaged and politically disenchanted. Yeah. I feel like I've got an obligation to try and, you know, help my state and help our country. Yeah. Why why do you think you feel like the governor's position is like the place to do that. I think a lot of people look at like the federal government and being in Congress, like you said, it is such a honor and there's so many amazing responsibilities that go with that. But why do you feel that, you know, state politics is where you can make the most change? I think a lot of people kind of woke up to that during COVID that their governors, their mayors have so much power and they really need to pay more attention to that. So can you kind of highlight that of why you think all of that stuff you just talked about and highlighted of what you want to change? Like why the governorship is where you want to do it. So it's like the legislative branch versus the executive branch. Mm -hmm. My personality, my experience is really much more suited for the executive branch. We're like the boss. And I say, this is the problem. We have to marshal our resources. Let's work together and go solve this problem. I'm going to help lead you in the direction of solving this problem. When you're a legislator, it's more like you make a speech on the floor of Congress and you give you this is I think we should do it this way and let's try this. And I need to build a coalition of people to help me to do it. You know, and I'm pretty good at it, but I'd be even better as the executive of trying to like lead the charge and say, let's this is my vision of the future. You know, you build your vision by talking to all the different voices, all the legislators, all the constituents, all the not for profit groups, all the activists. You build your vision, but then you say, This is my vision, let's do it and let's make it happen. And that's my, I'm suited for that based upon my life experience, based upon my temperament. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think that New York State is so important as far as playing a leadership role in the country. That's true. Yeah, totally. And I just feel like I could make a big difference. You know, you talk about COVID. I'm very unhappy with the way our current governor dealt with COVID. She never laid out a comprehensive plan. She never said, you know, we got to go out and market vaccines, okay? When everything's said and done, all the debate, all of this, we try this, but, Vaccine's the most important thing. We should have celebrities on TV, like marketing, like why it's important to have a, a, a vaccine. Marketing is everything. Marketing is everything. We should have, we should have every doctor, every hospital has these long email lists. They should be sending out emails to everybody saying, hey, you should get a vaccine. Forget about the people that like refuse to get a vaccine. Forget about that. Forget about that. So many people got one vaccine, but they didn't get a second vaccine. So many people got two vaccines, but they didn't get a booster. Yeah. So we should be marketing that as to why that is so important to do that to save your life and save other people's lives. 
So we should be marketing this mandate stuff in this fractured environment that we have these days. I'm a big proponent of vaccines. I'm a big proponent of masks. I'm a big mm -hmm. proponent of testing stuff. But because our culture is so fractured, you know, the idea that you know Democrats support mask wearing and band-aids, but Republicans don't, that's crazy. This is not political. This is science and good health. We yeah. should be selling these ideas to people, marketing these ideas to people. If we try to force it, especially if we haven't sold it properly, we're not going to get the support we need. And we're, that's that's a recipe for anarchy. So Yeah. Well, we always say Democrats don't need magic. They just need marketing. So I think we are very much aligned in terms of this. But sort of as we come to close of our discussion, we do want to give you the platform to give voters sort of two takeaways they should really know about your campaign and, of course, where they can learn more, you know, jump into volunteer, help out in the campaign. You know, where can they get involved? So you come to Swazi for New York, SwaziforNY.com, and uh, come sign up for the campaign. We would love to have you on the team. We want you on our team. You could also do it through any social, any of our social media platforms. I'm on all the different social media platforms. And we, I need people involved. I need the people. That's how I win, is by getting the people to be involved in my race. And again, I'm a proven executive. I'm a common sense Democrat. I'm not going to pander to the left and I'm not going to back down to the right. I'm going to work with people to get things done. And I want to work on preserving and protecting our environment, helping our troubled schools, reducing taxes and tackling crime. And I want young people to be involved and, and, and to help make the world a better place to live in. I've devoted yes. my life to public service. Okay, I'm a trained, as I said before, a lawyer and a CPA. I was, uh, you know, I went to Boston College. I studied accounting. I worked for a company called Arthur Anderson and Company as an auditor. I went to law school, Fordham Law School, and I clerked for a federal judge. And I worked for a big law firm called Sherman and Sterling. And then I was the mayor of my hometown for eight years. Then I was the county executive of Nassau County for eight years. I went, ran for governor once before against a guy named Elliot Spitzer. I got crushed. And then I, <laughs> Now, his life, you know, didn't turn out to, too well for him either. <laughs> and then I lost my reelection for county executive to a guy named Ed Mangano. He has since been convicted of bribery and corruption. So the rule is you can run against me, but if you beat me, you're doomed from then on. <laughs> Don't beat Tom Swazi. That's so uh, uh, I was in the private sector and I worked for a big investment banking firm and did some legal work. And I really missed public service. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was kind of like a big fat loser in politics because I had lost these races. And oh. my Congress member <laughs> announced he wouldn't run. He wasn't running for re-election. And a whole bunch of people announced they wanted to run. People said, you should run, you should run. So I ran and I won the primary. I won the general. And now I've been in, in Congress for five years on the most powerful committee, Ways and Means. I've got a great relationship with the new mayor of New York City. I endorsed him early, Eric Adams. I'm close to the speaker and who will be the new speaker, I hope, this guy, Hakeem Jeffries. But I'm giving it up because I really believe that our state needs help. And I believe that I have the experience and the common sense approach and the vision to do it. But I need the people. Okay. I need the, the girls in Gov to help me. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we're so happy you decided you came on the show. I think it's really, again, so important for people to, you know, reach young people where they're at. And we have a lot of young people listening and a lot of New York, 
New York young people too. So hopefully they were inspired by everything you've been saying today. And if I ever, also everyone listening, vote in the primaries, please. Like he you said, so important, so important. But thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was awesome. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Sammy. Yeah. Well, let's get into our top stories of the week. This is a big one. Definitely has me on the edge of my seat. I'll say that. A little a little frightened as well. But basically, the U.S. has ordered 8,500 troops on heightened alert amid Russia worry. So... The Pentagon has ordered 8,500 troops on high alert to potentially deploy to Europe as part of a NATO response force amid growing concern that Russia could soon make a military move on Ukraine. It's giving World War III. I don't know. But jokes aside, because there's a potential war um, happening here. Basically, President Joe Biden consulted with key European leaders, underscoring U.S. solidarity with allies there. So... Putting U.S.-based troops on heightened alert for Europe on Monday suggested diminishing hope that Russian President Vladimir Putin, naked man on the horse, will back away from what Biden himself has said looks like a threat to invade neighboring Ukraine. So Russia is potentially invading Ukraine, and the thought here is the U.S. putting some troops there would prevent that from happening or to at least push Russia back a little bit and reconsider. So I I would also like to just like insert here too, is there is a really good episode of The Daily that will throw in our story that is a great background explainer. Obviously it's from a few weeks ago at this point. So there are more things that have happened since, but what it does is it really provides the context as to why Putin has such an interest in Ukraine, specifically its connection to Russian culture, et cetera, et cetera, and why this is particularly a power move regardless of that currently i also would love to give a shout out to i can never say her name but i'm obsessed with her amali amelie zilber tiktok girl dating blake gray gorgeous stunning beautiful she did a really good run through too that's like really simple tiktok length if that's also more your speed but she she gives a good explainer as well and she's she's pretty stunning (laughs) Okay, so Maddie has a girl crush. (laughs) That is what we have learned. But what is at stake besides Maddie's um, love for Amelie is beyond the future of Ukraine, it's the credibility of a NATO alliance that is central to the U.S. defense strategy. For Biden, the crisis represents major tests of his ability to forge a united allied stance against Putin. So the Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said about 8,500 U.S.-based troops are being put on alert for possible deployment, not to Ukraine, but to NATO territory in Eastern Europe as part of an alliance force meant to signal unified commitment to deter any wider Putin aggression. Just putting an asterisk here that Ukraine is not a part of NATO. Part of this whole situation is that they at some point want to be a part of NATO and Putin does not want Ukraine to be a part of NATO because it is a threat to Russian power in his eyes. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, Russia also denies it is planning invasion, and it says Western accusations are merely a cover for NATO's own, just like, stirring of the pot. And recent days have seen high-stakes diplomacy that has failed to reach any breakthrough, and key players in the drama are making moves that suggest fear of imminent war. Uh, Love Love that that. for us. Let's add it to the fucking list of things. 
<laughs> that I just miss could go wrong. Times. I, I miss, miss just. Times. Yeah. Fuck. Anyways, so Biden has sought to strike a balance between actions meant to deter Putin and those that might provide the Russian leader with an opening to use the huge force he has assembled at Ukraine's border. So Biden has also held an 80-minute video call with several European leaders on the Russian military buildup and potential responses to an invasion if it happens. Russia has massed an estimated 100,000 troops near Ukraine's border, demanding that NATO promise it will never allow Ukraine to join, and that other actions such as stationing alliance troops in former Soviet bloc countries be curtailed. So... However, okay, I have a fun fact to throw in here. It's only, it's a partial fun fact, and it's another plug for this, the daily episode on this, but apparently there's, like, a limited time within um, that, like, Russia can act with these forces that are at the border, because, like, you know how, like, military equipment is, like, very, like, bulky, it's, like, really heavy, it's, like, weighs tons? Yeah. And right now, the land there is frozen, so those oh. vehicles can go across it. However, once it starts melting, it's into spring. Like in, when I lived in Vermont, we had this thing called mud season. Everything starts melting. Everything's really mushy. You're like trying to run through the, the mud, whatever. So anyways, they have mud season there as well. It's too thick for like these vehicles to be able to get through. And so it'll totally thwart. Is that how you say that? Thwart? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that really nice. came out my, my tongue <laughs> weird. I was like, Whoa. But it'll thwart the invasion. <laughs> Sounded like it felt or, good. from the throat guttural but yeah it will actually prevent i mean obviously there's so many different ways that military force can be used that's not a ground invasion yeah but some of that is almost like a it's a there's a seasonal deterrent that's a really interesting factor yeah that's also giving like world war ii i just thought we we were past (laughs) like tanks and boots on the ground i don't know so just We'll throw some other, we'll throw that other um, podcast episode in the description so that you guys can like dive into it more. This is a very, very complex topic with a lot of like broad strokes things that are happening right now. And obviously those broad strokes things are, you know, quote unquote scarier or seem very dramatic with reason, but there's a lot of background to understand the why and what. So we don't want to say that we totally are, you know, responsible for that in that way. And we want you guys to really dive into this daily episode so you have a good background on that. That yeah. is my two cents. That is my two Michael, cents. Go listen to Michael Babaro. He'll really explain it for you. His voice is so um, hot. In ways we just could never. Okay, moving on to the next story is Democrats have made surprising inroads in redistricting fight, okay? So Democrats brace for disaster when state legislatures began redrawing congressional maps. We've talked about this with Brian a few episodes ago. If you did not listen, please go listen to two episodes back with Brian Derrick that explains redistricting. Anyways, um, basically, Democrats have been fearing that Republican dominance of state houses would tilt power away from them for really the next decade. This isn't just about the 2022 midterms, you guys. This, this is for years to years to come, this redistricting. So but basically, as this process kind of has been reaching its final stages, finally, the anxiety is beginning to ease. So it, for Democrats... <laughs> That's that's the million dollar question. For Democrats, the worst case scenario of losing well over a dozen seats in the House appears unlikely to happen after some aggressive drop map drawing of their own in states with Democratic legislatures. Some Democrats predict the typical congressional district will shift from leaning to the right of the national vote to matching it, ending a distortion that gave 
the GOP a built-in advantage over the past five House elections. So are you guys still with us? (laughs) (sighs) The question of the hour. But the nation's congressional maps won't be settled for several more months, which is like always crazy to us. But say lobby, Republicans in similar states like Florida have yet to finally propose changes giving the GOP a last-minute opportunity to seek an advantage. But the picture could come into greater clarity this week as the Democrat-controlled New York State Legislature gets a chance to seize map-drawing power from the state's bipartisan commission, which like pretty much has like already happened, FYI. That would almost certainly blunt the GOP advantage that has been in place since the last year redistricting process in 2010. I also want to just like we talk about this a little bit in this episode with Congressman Swazi, and I want to like point out something. Like, okay, we do the census right like every 10 years. So that was 2020. 2020 technically was two years ago at this point, and we're not applying that data for like basically two years since that data was taken. And then to like our conversation with Brian and his point is like, there are often lawsuits that go on for years and years while this stuff is like in place that doesn't ever necessarily get resolved or it does, but it doesn't help like those next elections and whatever. So what a weird process and what an interesting thing that, there's so many things that obviously need reform. Honestly, a computer should do it. A computer should do it at this point. It's all data. That's as independent of a commission, I feel like, as it could get. So you'd think that would make sense. Just, like, looking at data and drawing maps, including all the factors. It shouldn't be political. It shouldn't be people doing it for strategy. It should just be representative. And I feel like a good old robot could do that. That's the one thing I want a robot for. I think I just made that decision. As long as he's a cute robot... Yeah, I think it would be cute. His name could be Archie. I don't know. I have a lot of dreams for this <laughs> robot. Okay, I'm into it. So all this jacking in state capitals has implications not just for Democrats and their uphill effort to maintain a majority in the House in this year's midterm elections, but it will affect the broader balance of power in Washington and state legislatures for the remainder of the decade, like we said. And so while Republicans say they have achieved their goals so far, they're surprised at how much Democrats have tried to expand the number of seats their party can win. And the GOP has taken a markedly different approach by aiming to shore up its vulnerable members' district and transforming competitive seats into safe ones. So if you listen to that episode with Brian, he kind of also breaks down really what competitive seats are versus safe ones. Go listen to that episode again if you haven't yet. It's super informative on this topic and it just very important to know going into this year so maybe just the l that we thought dems would take after this redistricting session journey battle is maybe not as bad as expected but i still you know the odds are still definitely against the democrats wouldn't you say yeah i would say just the elimination of more of the competitive districts than anything else is really the thing that's going to be the kicker so Mm -hmm. (sighs) As always, we'll keep you updated. There it is. Last story is about abortion access and the battle that has also begun on this topic. So again, back to the list of just things we have to worry about. (laughs) I love that for us. I love that for us. So basically, in the nearly two months since, a conservative majority of justices on the Supreme Court indicated 
openness to dramatic new restrictions on abortion, money has poured into political fundraising arm of the anti-abortion group Susan B. Anthony List. And the organization secured $20 million in pledged financial contributions, five times more than it had at the outset of an election year over its 30-year history. And before the recent surge, the group had already signed off on its largest ever political budget of $72 million for 2022. And that's nearly $20 million more than it spent in 2020, which was a presidential election. So, oh, this is crazy. The cash pile virtually guarantees that Supreme Court's abortion ruling anticipated by the summer will do little to quell what has become one of the most animating issues in the United States and abortion opponents say they will pump their newfound resources into the November elections which is scary it's giving Handmaid's Tale I yeah I mean I've never watched or read Handmaid's Tale so I can't speak on that but I can definitely make the comment that this is scary I feel like it's like just mind-blowing given the statistics of like how many people actually want to repeal Roe v. Wade in the U.S. versus not, and yet we are having, this is a really good example of money in politics and how that can like impact decisions regardless of like a general consensus. Can we that just talk about pitch. the fact that the president of Susan B. Anthony List's name is Marjorie? That's just fitting. That's I know, I, th- I feel like Marjorie is just, we, we might have said this before, but Marjorie is like the new Karen. Mm. I think I think Marjorie is the extremist version of Karen. <laughs> so overall, the Supreme Court is considering a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. The laws upheld anti-abortion activists said much of the attention would shift to Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Kansas. These are states with Republican legislatures, but Democrats in the governorship, governorship, each of whom is up for election in November. What is really important here? Oh my gosh, I have so many episodes to point back to. This is just crazy. We just cover so much good shit. Yes, we do. Two things. One, go listen to our episode with Representative Mandy Landry. She talks about Louisiana and trigger laws. Trigger laws mean that there are loads of states that have laws in the books that once something is overturned at the court level, that law goes into place. Very, like, much in terms of association. These are often related to abortion laws set up with Roe v. Wade in mind. In addition to that, for a fun fact numero dos, is the fact that governors in a lot of states, including those that we just listed, can veto legislation brought up by the legislature. So there are many states that have a Democratic governor and Republican legislature, and they have vetoed anti-abortion legislation. With these new races on the line, and possible, you know, swap of power, maybe a Republican, you know, governor comes in, there could be a lot of switch in terms of where these proposals actually land. So if you have a Republican legislature that throws an anti-abortion law into into the, the circuit, the ring, whatever the circus, it passes, it makes its way up to the governor's mansion, and then you've got a Republican that's anti-abortion, signs into law. Your security, mm-hmm. your gate on that is no longer there. So What is really important here is for everyone to really be looking into some of these governor's races. We will be actually speaking with a governor's candidate for the state of Florida, who's also a congressman, in February. It will be definitely a very interesting conversation that we will be having around this veto power and what that means at that point. But that should just give you a little bit of like a heads up as to how important 
paying attention to governor's races is this particular episode obviously we interviewed a candidate for new york state governor some of the issues might be a little bit different just based on the politics and whatnot but you get the the spiel i could go off i could go on i still am i can't stop i haven't even had coffee today but it's yeah this is a big big one and a big deal and i think i think highlighting this money being poured into these races on the opposite side is just an amazing slap to the face almost to everyone else who really cares about keeping abortion access available to women everywhere it's going to come down to the states so these midterms are crucial crucial but that is it for this week those are our top stories remember our housekeeping items never forget them brand ambassador program internships donation links all linked in the episode description the daily episode go listen to michael barrow learn about ukraine a little bit more and that is it i hope you enjoyed our interview with our first ever congress member we're so excited we had so much fun and hope you all enjoyed it but that is it for this week and we will be talking to you all next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.